Hi, everybody. I am speaking today with Maura O'Connor. Maura is an old friend, uh, a lovely person, and also the author of Resurrection Science, Conservation, De-Extinction, and the Precarious Future of Wild Things. So, Maura, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. It's such a pleasure. So, Maura, as I said, is uh, someone I've known for some years. I consider her to be quite a brilliant thinker, and I think she's coming to us live from New York today. Yep, I live in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Chaos I haven't been in touch with her so much recently, so when I picked up the book, uh, which is her first, and read through it, I was completely delighted to see so many of the of the philosophical ideas that she's exploring uh, are so similar to the things that have really captured my own attention recently, and uh, particularly my growing recognition that we really all need to be increasingly focused on the ecological challenges uh, of our time. And I feel like some of what's in Moore's book and the way that she's philosophically looking at ecological issues uh, is exactly the kind of thinking we need. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be talking with you, Maura. Uh, and, and maybe just to start things off, uh, I would ask a very general question, which is uh, why, what brought you to write Resurrection Science in the first place? Yeah, so um, great place to start. Um, thanks for having me. I want to say that first. So I'm a journalist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not like a environmental ethicist. Um, so my approach to this subject matters from sort of a journalistic um, standpoint. And when I was in graduate school, I took a class called Covering Ideas, which is basically the idea that even um, though events um, and people are what drive news stories, there's often an idea that could be animating the news as well. And so the course was really focused on, you know, how do you identify which which ideas are at work and sort of go that extra layer of depth um, to discover really interesting stories. So I got interested in the idea of how in order to save species, we have to bring them into arcs. Um, you know, this biblical story of Noah saving the animals by bringing them into an ark and it turns out that today a lot of how uh, conservation biologists are trying to preserve species that are threatened with extinction is to bring them into captive breeding. So that kind of launched this um, interest that I had for the next few years in this one specific case of a, of a really rare toad that was brought from Africa, from Tanzania, over to the U.S. and was kept in captivity for um, in two different zoos, and I went to visit one of the populations at the Bronx Zoo. And then I ended up going to Tanzania for two months to understand sort of how this had happened, what the issues were behind the species' uh, near extinction. And it started just really challenging all of my ideas about, you know, what, um, you know, what's the right thing to do um, to save species, you know, how um, we save a species, how does that 
change the evolutionary trajectory of a species? You know, by saving them, do we also change them? And then what does that tell us about um, our ideas of wilderness and how that's changing? Or was it even ever really a thing? Was it a human construct? So it really just, this sort of entry point of thinking about these arcs as a modern conservation strategy just quickly opened up a whole sort of um, plethora of issues um, that I also quickly realized couldn't really be unpacked without starting to get into ethics, um, history, politics, and philosophy. And so as a journalist, that's kind of like a goldmine. And so I just I uh, ran with it. Fantastic, and I can I can tell, even hearing that little opening statement, that the most challenging part of talking with you is going to be finding a way to limit this in time. Uh, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Like yeah I heard about ten things that I feel I could talk <laughs> with you about for an hour. Um, right. Uh, but I want yeah, to start generally by saying that um, the thrust of my own work uh, particularly over the last few years, has more and more become uh, the recognition that we we always live inside of a paradigm, which means we live inside of a lot of assumptions about the way things are that we don't recognize we hold, but that right. unconsciously shape the way we experience the world. And, right. Uh, and so most of what I try to do to support people is find ways to uh, let go of the paradigm that we're in so that we can be available to see things differently. Right. Uh, and I feel like one of the ways you do that is through a kind of, exactly what you're saying, it's kind of a, a philosophical inquiry into you know, some of the ideas that are driving us without realizing it. And I love, I hadn't, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's in the book. I didn't, I didn't pick it up if it was, but the idea that throughout our cultural history, there's some myth of saving animals in an ark that is continuing to act itself out uh, in our right. modern ecological movement. I think that's just brilliant um, because it shows right. the power of ideas. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, when you're talking about paradigms, like I quickly realized that I could kind of go back in time and figure out when the paradigm that I'd been existing in in regards to thinking about the environment and conservation was developed, and it was when I was a young teenager, you know, sort of hearing stories about the sixth extinction, I think I was like a pretty empathic young kid, and it struck me as a complete tragedy. And so after that, I just always thought like saving species was just unquestionably good and that uh, conservation ethic is a, is a kind of enlightened value um, and never really, um, that was never really challenged in part because I didn't become a biologist myself and so I was never on the ground you know, working in the field where some of those ideas might might have been challenged. It wasn't until I started traveling to places to look at the local context and to sort of more deeply research, like, the specific political, historical, and local context for these 
cases of different species on the brink of extinction that um, that paradigm was sort of revealed to me. Um, and, you know, it's it sounds kind of strange to be questioning it. Um, you know, someone who does ultimately care very much about the future of species and the future of, you know, um, natural wild places, however you define that, um, to start questioning these values seems almost counterintuitive um, and like you would be doing a disservice. But um, I kind of started to feel by the end of the book that part of why we are seeing a lot, a lot of the um, environmental disruptions go on check today is because there's a gap between our sort of philosophical um, and ethical foundations um, and uh, an environmental policy. Um, you know, environmental policy is really motivated by philosophical principles, um, and yet I think those really have to inform um, our ideas in order to have a policy that actually works. So this is kind of a longstanding problem over the last, you know, 50, maybe even 100 years of conservation. Um, and there's some really interesting people who have tried to address it. I just tried to explore that as a journalist. Mm. Well, and I love what you said about how, uh, you know, you took for granted as as I did and as most people would, that saving a species from extinction is a good thing. I mean, that, that right. feels like an unquestionable assertion. Uh, and the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead uh, once said that it takes an extraordinary mind to question the obvious. Uh, so something as obvious as it must be a good thing to... Uh, save a species from extinction is one of the things that you're exploring. And and pretty early on in the book, I think with the example of the toads that I know you studied quite closely, you immediately raised the ethical question, you know, maybe the, the most obvious ethical question is that these the effort to save a, a, a species from extinction is, you know, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of Funding it's very expensive, and uh, is that is that money well spent uh, in each case, and given what else it could be used for? I mean, I think in the example of the toads, you you contrasted the amount of uh, money that it was costing to uh, move the toads in order to save them from extinction in a country where human beings live at a, a sort of terribly low level of subsistence. Right. Yeah, I think I think one important thing to recognize is that when you're talking about bringing a species in from the from their habitat um to save them through captivity things have gotten really, really bad. So I want to make sure that um, it's clear that I'm never saying it's not a good thing to try and save species, but the way we try to save them is really important. And so what happened at a certain point um, in the sort of second half of the 20th century is that threats to habitat became so extreme that there were many 
arguments for why the way to save a species was to bring them into captivity, prevent their extinction, and then reintroduce them later. But what's happened is that that rarely, that second part rarely happens. So and it's very hard to bring a, a species into captivity and then ensure that they can actually survive in the habitat again, if that habitat even exists. And so captive breeding, in my mind, could be seen as a sort of um, second-best option um, that sort of slides the, the goalposts um, in the wrong direction, where instead of trying to preserve the habitats in which these species are intricately connected and evolved to and have relationships to all the other um, organisms in that habitat, we take them out of that um, to try and save them. And then often the original threats to the habitat aren't really solved. And so the root problem kind of keeps going unchecked. Mm. And so it's really the the issues that that brings up where I, I'm saying, is it ever, you know, is it actually always a good thing to save a species when the means to do that um and, and the impacts of doing that are so different from what we envision in our, you know, the way we think of how species survive um, through captive breeding and management. Um, so I just want to make sure that I make that distinction so it doesn't sound like I, I'm, like, a completely cold-hearted right. <laughs> analytical person who doesn't, you know, because I think, like, caring about species is, like, it, it, it's such a... It is a deep thing. I don't want to um, make it sound like um, I don't know what the word is, but like that I that I'm arguing that there's usually a good reason not to do it. Um, but going back to the Kehanti spray toad in Tanzania, I mean, what was so interesting about that case is, in some ways, a lot of conservation stories are about human interest being you know pitted against a species interest. And in Tanzania, that um, those interests couldn't have been more directly opposed. So the, the frog only lives in the one waterfall in the entire world. And the waterfall happens to be a perfect site for a hydraulic um, dam. And in a country that, you know, is starving for electricity and indeed electricity you know, the lack of electricity there is connected to, you know, so many other uh, problems such as poverty and education and uh, development. So you really couldn't have, I don't think there's too many cases where that, those interests were so directly opposed to one another. And that's why it became such a fascinating case study. Um, you know, how do you start making decisions when you're putting um, species over humans, humans over species, um, you know, how do you develop a, an ethical framework for trying to even answer those questions? Right, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm glad you, you made the pre, precursive point uh, because I think where we'll go in the interview, or at least what I see in your writing, is definitely not an assertion that we should, you know, not worry about yeah, right, right. Propagation right. of species. But I think what you're yeah. offering people is a is a way to start to think about the complexity involved that right. could 
you know that that at least in my reading of the book felt like you were at, uh, gesturing toward a direction that could actually yield a solution to a problem we didn't know we had. You know, it was right. the, the problem that actually we're, we think we're solving through a lot of the, the efforts at, uh, you know, saving species. But I, I got the feeling in your book that you were pointing, you kept pointing to the deeper issues involved uh, that, that won't be addressed necessarily by our current efforts in the way that you were just saying. So maybe to right. to ask a follow-up question or to point in a follow-up direction in the book, you kind of start with, as you said, this more obvious uh, opposition between human and species and, and the needs of one species, i.e. the human one, and in this case, toads. But right. then you back up and you say, well, you know, you may or may not realize it, but we don't even know how to define a species and how how we think about what a species is, which is something I hadn't, which made a lot of sense when I read it in your book, but I hadn't really thought about it, that it's a very hotly political issue because how how we determine what a species is and how we slice up, you know, the animal kingdom into species affects a lot of a lot of the ways that grant money would be distributed and, and that efforts would be funded. Right, right. Yeah, you see a really interesting thing happening, like particularly when you could start looking at um, an organism's DNA more cheaply, you know, which is that it may seem that, you know, spe- uh, different organisms can be grouped into species identities based on, like, reproductibility or... Um, you know, even it used to be just how they looked. Um, and then once you look into the genome, you realize, oh, this is really messy. Like the whole sort of evolutionary um, history of a species, you know, shows how, you know, hybrids create more species. And, um, you know, they may be so deeply um, very identical to one another but have, you know, very different habitats. And so then it becomes you know, question of, well, can you just get rid of one habitat or, you know, even if it exists over here? Um, so trying to figure out and untangle, like, wh- where do you sort of draw the line? How do you delineate the start of a species and where it ends and another one begins becomes this, um, it's not only scientifically fascinating, but then, like you said, it has these implications for, well, are we going to spend money to save this species um, if, if there's disagreement over whether or not it is actually distinct from this other, you know, bird. Or, and so there's, I think in the book I say there's 26 different species concepts that are used in the scientific literature. Um, and part of the reason I found it so interesting to discover this and look into it is because, you know, depending on how you define a species also informs how you think of saving it. So one of the great environmental ethicists who really almost, you know, he's the grandfather of the field is Holmes Rolston III. And I got to talk to him a couple of times for the book. And he has an idea of what makes a species a species that's really fascinating, which is that it has to do with its telos and its 
the kind of um, relationship of the species to its environment and the identity of the species passed on through the generations. Um, and so what's interesting about that is, you know, um, for him, conserving a species could never happen if you're not keeping that animal in its environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes a really um, provocative way of thinking about it and just realizing that, you know, how you define it is really important, but also the whole exercise of defining it is a very human thing. <laughs> it's not like nature <laughs> does this. You know, it, nature is much more messy and complicated and creative than that, and we have sort of, you know, begun this process of putting things into boxes to organize the world around us, and that comes with its own problems. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, um, this insight that you're sharing, I mean, there's two insights you're sharing right now, and I want to touch on both of them, but one is that that species, you know, we, we tend to think that animal species, you know, in our common language, we feel it's pretty... You know, it's pretty clear-cut. You have different species of dogs, and you look at a dog, and you can tell which species it comes from. Uh, But the reality is much more complex. And this was already, uh, you know, this was already something that was inspiring Charles Darwin's ideas, uh, you know, back in the 1850s. Now, of course, it was probably easier then because we didn't have any knowledge of DNA, so... Species were simply, you know, it was simply a matter of characteristics. But even at that, you know, Darwin spent time studying thousands upon thousands of examples of uh, beetles, different different individual beetles determining their species. And what he found is that no matter, you know, there's always some individual beetles that are clearly one species or another, at least, you know, from his observation. But there's always examples in between where you can't tell which species they're from. Right. right. Uh, and he, you know, he concluded that there are no species. Uh, right. That that basically there's just one sort of chain of being that that evolves and shifts, but there's no clear line that separates species. Right. Yeah, it's very it's very um, interesting, and I think. Um, one of the issues then that I came upon was the fact that, um, you know, like Darwin and so many of his um, peers who accepted his theory of evolution and then subsequent generations of scientists always assumed that evolution of species took place very, very slowly and over eons. And, um you know, one of the things that is so fascinating is that in the last 20 years, there's been this real recognition that that, in fact, isn't the case, that there are plenty of species. Um, in fact, many species that scientists turn to, it seems, have really rapid rates of evolution. And so one of the species I write about in the book is this kind of obscure fish in New Mexico called the white sands pupfish. It's a desert fish, and it's really an interesting um, organism. And it only right now lives in four different locations, and it's capable of such a high speed of evolution that it can actually change in decades um, rather than, you know, 
centuries or hundreds of thousands of years. So the fact this fish lives in four different locations and is constantly evolving, you know, eventually those fish may become different species. Um, <laughs> and when that happens, no one is really sure. So they created a kind of new term, which is a like an evolutionary significant unit. So right now these four populations of white sand pupfish are what they call ESUs. Um, so it's just really um, interesting how these ideas and then the science changes our ideas and we have to keep reevaluating, you know, how this whole world really works in a way. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the other idea that you touched upon earlier you know, one was one was that it's not clear. The distinction between species is not clear. Um, but the other one is that, in a way, uh, as you were saying, us, we assume that a species exists independent of its environment. And uh, one of the one of the questions, one of the lines of questionings you open is, is that really true? And you were just talking about it a minute ago. So. If, for instance, we are to take a species that is that that's environment is being destroyed and put it in a more uh, you know in in some sort of a captive environment where the species can be preserved, does that remain the same species? Uh, right, right. How long will it be the same species? And is you know, is it possible to save a species, or is each movement that you're doing, each action that you're taking, affecting the species anyway? Right, right. Yeah, it's really I, early on in my um, research, like when I was just first starting to sort of discover, you know, how I could write about conservation biology. I talked to an environmental ethicist who put it in really fascinating terms for me, and it's stuck with me ever since, which is if you think of evolution as a novel and then you think about how humans are trying to intervene to save species from extinction, it's like you could think of them as changing the words of that novel, that they're sort of reauthoring it. And um, I thought that was really, mm. really interesting. But as you say, if, if a species is capable of rapid evolution um, and you're taking it out of its environment and the normal sort of constraints or conditions that drive its um, evolution under so-called normal circumstances and bring it into captivity, say, or, um, or relocate it to a different environment, you really are sort of intervening in the, the species trajectory um, in a way that raises all kinds of questions about what does it mean to actually preserve something that's always changing, um, you know, no matter what, and is mm. always capable of change and flux and evolution. And so I think conservation biologists are really starting to um, appreciate this, you know, and question, well, um, can we say if we've brought in the last, 10 individuals of a species and introduce them to this this environment, um, can we say that we're preserving them or are we actually introducing potentially conditions that create new traits and change um, the species' behavior or maybe even identity in a more fundamental sense? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and those are becoming very important questions the more scientists realize the nature and, and potential speed of evolution. And then, of course, you know, climate change becomes, gets this whole other dimension where we think of it as sort of driving, you know, dri- driving a lot of species, um, shrinking their habitat, driving them towards potential population decreases and even demographic collapse. Um, but in fact, it's also just the driver of evolution. It's another way of thinking of it. And that really, you know, challenges our ideas of this idea that, you know, there's still really wilderness out there, places that people aren't influencing directly or indirectly through global warming. Right. Um, yeah. Now that's beautiful. And it brings me to, you know, the, a point of, of I think deep synergy between the the study and the research you've done and my own interest, which uh, which in in the case of this book kind of land on the figure of Timothy Morton, uh, the professor now at Rice University, uh, whom you mentioned toward the end of your book, and and whom I feel. Uh, you know he's he's really articulating what may be the foundational dilemma that underlies all of our ecological problems which is that we have as you know at least in the western world um, you know embraced a view of nature in which we see ourselves as separate from nature yeah. uh, so, so Timothy wrote a book uh, ecology without nature, implying that uh, we need to find a way, you know, an ecological view which doesn't rest on the assumption that nature is somehow uh, something that can be separated from the rest of the world, uh, and right. to recognize that, you know, either everything is nature or there is nothing that you could call nature. But the idea that there's that 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 reality can be split into that which is natural and that which is unnatural right. is the underlying philosophical assumption that right. propagated out over a few hundred years leads to the kind of ecological crisis that we are facing. Right, right. Yeah, it's a yeah. I felt compelled to talk with Timothy for the book precisely because of his ideas that you just described. Um, what's interesting is because the book deals with species that are the focus of efforts um, of, you know, biogenetic engineering and even de-extinction, the idea that you could bring back a species that's already disappeared through technology, I was coming across this idea a lot that, like, well, if everything's natural and humans ourselves are natural, you know, we're a product of this earth the same way as any other organism is, um, then the actions that we take, you know, can't be called unnatural. Um, and therefore our influence on the biosphere and on other species can't be called artificial. And so it's kind of a interesting approach, but I felt myself really disagree with it, even though I do think that this historical split that was created in the, you know, Western origins of Western philosophy in the Western mind 
is highly dubious and is um, can be credited with creating many of of the um, ecological problems we're facing. So we didn't really know how to figure this out, and that's why I got on the phone with Timothy to ask him, you know, what he thought. And his, um, he's a really interesting, flamboyant guy, as you know, and you know, he has some really interesting ideas about this. And one thing that he said to me that stuck with me is, you know, the whole idea of trying to figure out what's natural and artificial sort of not useful. He said, you know, instead of trying to prove that the forest has intrinsic value or the forest is natural or now it's not natural anymore, like ask yourself whether you love the forest and ask yourself whether you're entranced by it and obsessed with it. And this was just really interesting to me and provocative because um, it did seem to me that the level of interest we take in um, the species around us and cohabitate this earth with is a key to a future ecological ethic and that that's a really important thing, especially in today's, you know, increasingly urban sort of world where we're often experiencing species through television set. You know, I mean, that's just the reality. And, you know, um, I think that he offers some really provocative and frankly, kind of just fun um, brain puzzles to <laughs> to try and you know take take into consideration. I found myself stretched um, very much by my conversation with him, and I think it was a positive thing. Yeah, and I guess what what I the, the thing that I that really resonates with me um, around some of the you know some of uh, Timothy's ideas that. You know that they resonate with my own experience in in other contexts, uh, in more overtly spiritual contexts. Mm-hmm. But it's you know what I I realized is that this the idea that nature that nature is somehow separate from us, you know, is is itself um, kind of a subset of an even bigger assumption, which is that. There is some place that you can, that we can be, can stand, that leaves us, you know, that, that we would, that we would want to call sort of objective, that leaves us sort of separate and uninvolved. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe it even goes back to your original thought about the ark, you know, that somehow the ark is somehow separate and uninvolved, uh, but the idea that we exist or even can exist in a way that is separate and uninvolved, that there's any place to stand in which you are inconsequential, I think, right. is, I think it's the most, you know, it's one of the most, it's one of the most important philosophical assumptions to be questioned. And I, I feel it runs all through your book in the various, investigations that you're doing and the, and the different points you're bringing out. There's a way that I felt all through it what was being challenged was the idea that I could ever be uninvolved or that humanity could ever be uninvolved, that, that our efforts uh, to save right. a species were not in themselves affecting that species. And right. I think that is the, you know, that kind of flip into 
unavoidable consequence is right, right. Is, the, is the one that humanity needs. Right. Yeah, and in fact, like, the further I kind of got into, immersed myself in the science and learned about the science between behind these different species, the more clear that became. One of the species I write about is the North Atlantic right whale and learning about the relationship between, you know, southern oscillation indexes and copepods, you know, these tiny little shrimp-like um, krill that these whales, massive whales the size of school buses feed on and how and genetics and ecology, how that all is so deeply connected in such a complex way that, you know, it's taken hundreds of scientists, you know, 40 years to begin to ask some of the questions even of how the species lives, survives, <laughs> mates, migrates, you know, and still they don't really understand so much. There's so many mysteries. Like that interconnectedness became just glaringly obvious to me. And I think a lot of um, environmentalists have really been trying to point this out. You know, you can look at the whole Gaia hypothesis as a sort of early, um, um, you know, concept in which this is described. But one thing that I also realized is that a lot of the ideas we have about what what is wilderness have to do with this split, and this is why it's really important, I think, you know, for someone like me to get into the political and historical um, nuances. You know, this idea about wilderness is not some kind of universal, you know, notion that was bestowed upon us from our earliest, you know, evolutionary ancestors. Like, this comes out of a specific, um, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition at a specific economic, you know, turning point in our history, which is the agricultural revolution, Columbus arriving in the so-called New World, our ideas about indigenous people. You know, there are many factors that influence our ideas about nature, versus humans and pristine wilderness versus, you know, um, human environments. And what Timothy, I think, is saying is, like, to hell with all of that. Philosophically, it's not defensible. Um, and that's really, I think, provocative and, and fascinating. Right. And, and, I, and I feel like, um, you know, in, in Timothy's work and, and in your book, and I certainly hope in in the work that I do, the there's an, there's a, an underlying uh, momentum toward a deeper responsibility. And I mean that's that's what I would say is the you know it's it's what I felt most in your book by the end in terms of you know where does it land in me uh, and and what. And, and what I felt was, you know, there's this, from every different angle that you, know, that you look at, you, you have this sense that there is, we are a species uh, that lives in nature. We are part of nature. We're not separate from it. Therefore, everything that we do has unavoidable consequence. Right, and, right. And so, you know, you're challenging some of the ideas that we have 
uh, about things that are obviously, you know, about activities that we can engage with around species extinction that at first blush would seem to have only positive uh, effect. And and saying, well, no, it's deeper. And so what I felt was a call to deeper responsibility. I I have a blog that I called... I call philosophy is not a luxury, yeah. and I think your book is a great example as to why. Because in our efforts at, uh, you know, our efforts at re- resurrection science need to have a deeply philosophical component because we really need to uh, expand and understand the consequences of our efforts. Right. Uh, to resurrect species, and I feel like that's the, that's your call is quite the opposite, actually, of uh, not caring about species or or in some cold way feeling like it's not worth it, but really a call to care about more than species in the common sense, and to really look at the entire interconnected balance of life and how our resurrection science efforts are affecting the whole. Right, right. Yeah, and I think the book doesn't make specific um, prescriptions about how people can manifest, you know, through action that sense of responsibility they have. But for me personally, what I found through writing the book was, you know, one that, um, like, education, taking the initiative to educate ourselves about, you know, the particular context um, in which uh, species conservation cases are taking place is really important. It's not enough to kind of like look at a place on the other side of the world and say, oh, you know, they should really be saving those rhinos. I can't believe all these poachers are killing them. Like, isn't that horrible? Um, you know, like why, what is driving um, poaching of rhinos in South Africa? You know, like what are the the forces, and I think it's really identifying those underlying forces then that is where source, where methods of action can start to reveal themselves. And um, I think that's a really important thing because so often um, we do feel a sense of responsibility. We are not sure what to do with our kind of moral outrage about what we're hearing and seeing in the world. Um, but that's not a reason to um, sort of, you know, short-circuit this process of really thinking deeply about what's causing it, what are the possible um, solutions, and what role you might be able to take in those. That's that's beautiful, Maura. And, um, you know, one of the reasons, uh, besides the fact that I just personally think you're an amazing individual. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is because, uh, you know, you are a, you're a, a younger person with some big ideas, uh, very much at the start of your uh, career as, a, as, a, as an agent of change, let's say, in the world. Uh, and uh, I feel like it's it's important that the that the voices of people who are uh, younger, who have fresh perspectives, who are 
at the beginning of their efforts be amplified and broadcast. Uh, and so, you know, it's a pleasure to talk with you today, and I'd love to give you one uh, final chance to say anything directly to the audience of people that might be listening to our conversation. Uh, yeah, well... Take them to walk away with. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just speak through what you just, that sort of term you used, agent of change, which is, you know, I, it would be hard for me to present very much evidence of my own, you know, ability to affect change. But what I see my job as a journalist being is to harness my own curiosity and interest um, in the service of what I think are important um, and fascinating stories. And so all of, you know, I approach things not as an activist and not as a um, spokesperson or something, but just as a journalist who's interested in, like, understanding as close as I can, you know, the truth of different stories and what's really animating them, even if that seems counterintuitive. Um, but that that interest is really not just the province of journalism. It's just something that is wonderfully... Um, characteristic of all of us that we all can develop, you know, that, that sense of interest. Um, and in fact, usually it just is already there. It's something that we, that we have. And, um, so I think it's an incredibly powerful tool. Um, and there's just so many fascinating, interesting people and stories out there, um, that there's really just no shortage of how to feed that, um, that curiosity and interest in ourselves. And, and then I think um, we decide what, you know, where to go from there. So. Great. Wonderful. And uh, yeah, I would just want to say that I learned a lot from reading resurrection science and am honored to include you in the list of my many influences and teachers. Uh, and I think that's a real, it's a real service. I definitely will see things differently for having read it. Uh, and I want people to know that the book is called Resurrection Science. Uh, Maura O'Connor, or as it's listed in the book, M.R. O'Connor uh, is the author. And Maura, how else can people find out, find your writing besides, besides reading the book? Um, well, most of my stories are published online with different outlets, and I have a website, you can go to resurrection.com or mroconnor.info, and I have a kind of bi-monthly, in addition to sort of listing the new stories that I've come, up, come out with on those sites, I also have a bi-monthly newsletter, which is just basically an excuse for me to write up um, short reviews of everything I've been reading recently <laughs> and uh-huh. put up um, funny or, like, interesting news stories relating to science or literature or travel that I've come across. Um, it's not always consistent bi-monthly, but I try really hard, and it's just kind of a, a neat way for me to keep in touch with people. And um, so those are two ways. And then thirdly, I'm working on my second book, and it's also, um, I think, interesting and about the science and neuroscience of navigation 
in animals and people and how it um, defines our relationship to the world and our environment. Um, and I've been traveling all over for it, so I think it's going to be great. I hope if I can get it written. <laughs> so hopefully um, people keep me in mind. They can keep their eyes out for that um, in, the, in the future. So in conclusion, Maura, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, I think it's truly a, a wonderful book, and I hope, uh, hope lots of people will pick it up and, and read through it. Thanks, Jeff. It's really nice to connect with an old friend and talk about new ideas, and it's just fantastic. Uh, uh, I, I agree. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. All right.